Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast Supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. Welcome, a good morning, a good afternoon, or a good evening to you, however you may be listening, or wherever you may be listening. This is the Man on the Post podcast, uh, coming to you on Monday, the 23rd of April, which is of course St. George's Day. So whether or not you're English or not, celebrate it. If you're not, if you don't feel like it, whatever. I'm Welsh, so I don't really care, but you never know, there may be some patriotic person out there that would kill me if I didn't, if I failed to mention it. Um, We come to you after a, well... The weekend wasn't exactly full of news, but Friday was possibly the biggest bombshell to hit uh, the English uh, shores since the Germans. So let's crack on and let's talk about it. But before we do, let's introduce our panel. And it's uh, as as we usually liked it, like it to be. We've got our man, James, coming all the way from the Netherlands. Good evening, fellas. Evening, and we've also got everyone's second favourite, Dower Yorkshireman, coming only after Neil Warnock, of course. It's Colin. How are you, Colin? <laughs> yeah, hi there, guys. Um, I'd, I'd just like to say, Matthew, how many dragons have you ever seen in England? In England? Um, I've seen a kimono dragon at Marwell Zoo. I don't know if that counts. No, no, they don't count. We're talking about the big, that- the big red ones. Yes. None, none in England, but plenty in Wales. Right, well, well <laughs> yeah, that's why um, St. George is great. Um, yes, I assume you, you were celebrating today, you had your bunting on, you had your you know, Night of St. George parade around your neighbourhood, I assume. Oh, yeah, and then, and then what with the royal baby as well? I was cock a hoop. Oh, it's been a great yeah. If if you're that kind of person, it has been a great day for you. They haven't announced. It has they, been a great day. They haven't announced the baby's name yet, have they? They they just we just know it's a boy. We we know it's a boy. At, um, at I, time of recording, which is eight pm. Um, I did actually get bet, uh, odds from William Hill um, on it being called Colin. Um, this was before the birth, and that was a hundred to one. And that's before they knew it was either a boy or a girl. Crikey. So I'm feeling like I might be quids in. You might be. Because half the market's gone now. I did I did something similar. I When Kate had a... We're, we're detracting from the football. Um, when Kate had her first baby, like as soon as the news put out, I, I came and put a fiver on it being Diana. Or being called Diana. And then, of course, it became a boy. So that scuppered that all up this morning. But... We're all here to talk about the uh, royal birth or the royal wedding that's coming up in a couple of months, next month. I forget the date because I particularly don't care. There's only really one place we can start, and it's a good thing we have James today, so we'll basically kick off with him. Everyone knows the news by now. Arsene Wenger is going at the end of the season. Whether or not you think that's a year too late, two years too late, eight years too late, or 21 years too late, Arsene Wenger will no longer be Arsenal manager come... Uh, the first game of the season 
James, as the resident Arsenal fan, there's only really one place to start, and that's with you. Yes, um, interesting news. Uh, my first thoughts were one of disbelief, but uh, as soon as I read the reports, um, I could fully understand. Nobody can carry on for forever, and all good things come to an end. I just hope that we can finish the season as strongly as possible and only remember the good times, because you've got to remember Wenger, OK, he's not infallible, but was working with uh, restrictions and one hand behind, uh, tied behind his back at times and uh, having too much belief in certain players that were not good enough to play for Arsenal. So uh, I just hope that we can uh, finish the season on a high, preferably with a victory in a European final in Lyon. And uh, attention now turns to the uh, successor, where um, uh, shortly before coming on the pod, the name of Mikel Arteta was banded about, which I'm strongly against, because I believe that um, if you're going to be Arsenal manager, you need to have sufficient experience in your own right and Arteta doesn't have that uh, as a fan of more than 30 years my shortlist for the new manager would be one of Ancelotti Jardim Simeone or Allegri but it remains to be seen if Ivan Gazidis and the board will make the right decision it's a big uh, responsibility for them they have to make the right decision because it's the uh, it's the, a huge um crossroads now and there's no this is no time for vanity projects or trying to be a smart house or trying to be intelligent this is about getting the best man for the job uh, and if you asked me who i would appoint i would say carlo ancelotti yeah that seems fair carlo ancelotti would be my uh, would be my um choice as well if i was ivan gazidis but you mentioned that there's sort of two ways that arsenal can go about this and you know and i'll, I'll bring i'll bring colin in with this colin there's, as I said, there's two ways to go about this. Should Arsenal appoint a quote-unquote project manager straight away, or should they, knowing just how badly it went with David Moyes at Manchester United, and that was meant to be sort of a project manager, you know, the up-and-comer for next time, you know, you could put the likes of Patrick Vieira or Mikel Arteta in that same sort of class. Should they go for that straight away after Arsene Wenger, or should they go for... That manage that big name manager two to three years just to stabilise everything and maybe progress just a little bit further. That's that's a big question. I mean, I, I don't know the answers to that. I mean, my particular thoughts would be, um, you know, you talk about giving someone two or three years. I, I'll be looking. I'll be honest. I, I don't think a manager will get two to three years unless they're, they're winning trophies. Um, I think Arsene Wenger was a one-off, which is why when, you know, some people said he wasn't being particularly successful, he, he was still there at Arsenal. Uh, we've seen the comings and goings of other managers and it's it's difficult because do Arsenal become, do they, like Manchester United before them, do they try and develop a manager that's going to be there for the long term or or do you just scrap that and just say hey what about the Chelsea model get a guy in burn him out and as soon as he doesn't do what we tell him to do bang he's gone um, I, I don't think you'd be able to get a manager who's going to be given by the Arsenal fans two or three years if he's not absolutely up and running, 
um, right from the off. Um, and I think that's going to be pretty tough from where they are right now in the league. Yeah, so, and then, then of course, there's the idea, and you saw, and you saw floated it, um, the idea of sort of combining the two ideas of getting a, off the top of the head, um, a, a Matam, uh, an Allegri in charge for the two or three years. And then, in the meantime, having Patrick Vieira or Mikel Arteta sit beside them for those two or for those two or three years so they know that that's the next that's the that's the eventual successor so that, that similar, never works yes i agree with colin on that that never works you you can't people people seem to think that that works but i completely agree with colin that that doesn't work at all oh they, my, they chuck they chuck number two out with number one Okay, fair enough. I'm yeah, just, I'll so, just float, I'll just float it as an idea, but okay, I'll, I'll back I'll back down happily. So, so you think it should be the, as you mentioned the Chelsea model of big name manager two or three years, and then after the two or three years is over, right? Who's the next one? Well, I'd argue, isn't that the the modern football model? I mean, un- unless Arsenal want to be, you know. Um, go left field and, and just try and get another sort of Arsene Wenger which I don't think we'll ever see again likewise another Ferguson ever again um, I, I don't know I, I can't see I don't see the point in Arsenal fans going for longevity in managers because to be honest as, as beautiful and lovely as it sounds I mean I'll take James's you know, advice on this, but it didn't really work out, did it, that longevity for Arsenal towards the end? Uh, no, well, what it was is Wenger had far too much power and far too much belief in certain players that were not good enough to the detriment of Arsenal Football Club. And for me, that was one of his, that was his major weakness. It's fine to believe in a player. It's fine to want the best for a player and for the player to Blake through but if a player is quite clearly not good enough you have to um, you have to let him go it's the same as his buying policy to bid 40 million and one pound for Suarez when he's the most lethal striker on the planet even back then if you go in with a decent bid it's like going into a shop and saying how much is that shirt and the, and the owner of the shop saying that's that's 50 pounds and you say well I'll give you 37 no if, if you want to buy it you have to pay the money and sometimes it's as if it's been against his beliefs to do that. I just hope that they um, go for a manager who can uh, who can stabilise, who knows what it is to manage a big club, who knows what it means to win a league title. I'm under no illusions at all. It's going to be very difficult. I don't expect Arsenal to win the league next season. I don't expect uh, miracles overnight. But I will look forward to a manager adopting a new formation to having a buy-in policy where he will scout a player and maybe not go for the most uh, polished player or a player that everybody thinks is the most popular but goes for a player that he believes is good enough and um, yeah it, it just it, but it, the appointment must not become a circus they need to identify their uh, their targets and speak to them and interview them thoroughly and then make the right decision. I'm going to the match against Atletico Madrid on Thursday. And I'm, I'm really looking forward to it. Not just because of the European occasion and everything. Mm. And the emotion involved. But also in all my years of, of, of watching uh, Arsenal Wenger's Arsenal. It will be the last Arsenal match I go to in person. 
where Arsene Wenger will be the manager. So it'll be a little bit strange. But I just hope that the the the, the, um, that the process doesn't drag out because that doesn't do anybody any favours, especially in a World Cup year. I just hope that uh, I just hope that they make the right decision and stick to their guns and give the new manager time. Because Colin touched on it recent uh, just now, where he doesn't believe that uh, Arsenal fans will be um, open to longevity if they see a manager not doing what they perceive is 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 right. Then they need to bite their lip and they need to get to grips with a new manager and, and give him the respect and give him the time to uh, to put this new Arsenal together and to hopefully get result, results on the pitch. James, can I just interject? And uh, Sorry, Matthew. I just want to ask you, James, two questions. One, who is in charge of transfers under Wenger? And two, who will be in charge of transfers with a, another new guy? Well, I'm not entirely sure. I know that um, Gazid is being um, is, was heavily involved with uh, transfers and would would often placate um, fans by saying, "No, we're targeting this one and we're targeting that one." But he never appeared to be as ruthless as what David Dean was in terms of targeting, in terms of getting deals over the line. It was as if Gazidis was happy to be linked with certain players, but to never have to do the dirty work to get the player to sign for the club. And um, I think Gazidis will carry on in that role. But you look at the structure behind the scenes, even with Arsenal's youth team. We used to have a, a fantastic youth setup of players that wouldn't necessarily break through, but that would go on to become Premier League players. And when you look at what's breaking through now, it's, it's, a, it's a shadow of its former self. I saw, um, I was at the Ostersons game back in February. And I saw Iwobi being given a torrid time by the Ostersons right back. And rather than be creative and think about a new way to get past the Ostersons right back and put the ball in the box or create an attacking chance, he gets frustrated and throws his hands in the air and throws a big massive strop and then starts to blame the referee. And um, I just hope that the new manager can um, can tackle the, uh, the youth set up head on. And this is something which is... Is different for everybody. I mean, there's some Arsenal fans that have never known any other manager apart from Arsene Wenger. I was very young when George Graham was uh, was manager and Bruce Rio, but I still remember. I still remember celebrating the uh, Cup Winners' Cup win of '94 and the League Cup wins and the um, and the FA Cup win and the, winning the league title. I was very very young as well, but I remember those days. It's going to be strange for everybody, but it's it's exciting as well. You know, we've got to give the new man a chance. It'd be nice to get the the fans together again, rather than kicking lumps out of one another and berating one another for having different opinions. You know, I always thought that a fan group you stick together. You know, if 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 you are both for that team, you want to hear somebody else's opinion you're happy to uh, discuss things and have a laugh and a joke rather than in the case of recent years when Arsenal fans that are against and for Wenger have been kicking lumps out of one another and uh, insulting one another I think that's uncalled for yeah and further so further uh, uh, moving on from the sort of uh, or staying with the you know who's going to be the manager long term and it's just occurred to me we're here on St George's Day why are there no English managers linked to the job? You know, for all the for the past couple of years, I've heard many a call for, oh, Eddie Howe's the man to replace Arsene Wenger. He's, you know, he plays nice, attractive football. It's it's about time he gets a go at the 
he gets a go at the big time, you know, to a lesser extent. Sean Dyche as well, who's done a fantastic job with Burnley this year and not too dissimilar to when to uh, Roy Hodgson, who did a fantastic job with Fulham, then took his Europa League final and then got the big move. So why haven't the why is there no English manager, at least in the immediate um, immediate forefront when we're talking about who's going to replace Arsene Wenger? Uh, Colin, I'll go. I'll go to you. I think they are in the. I think they are in the uh, mix. Um, the two names that you mentioned are exactly the ones I was thinking, Matthew. Um, Eddie Howe and Sean Dyche. I, I think they've got to make a step up at some point, or either prove or or lose. Um, the only issue I would see with one of those guys who are both successful at their own clubs in their own rights is that they'll look at what happened to David Moyes and think, heck, if that's me, that could be my career put back another 10 years. Um, so that's the only thing that puts me off them a little bit. Um, but, I mean, I've, I've, I've said it for years and years on this podcast, Eddie Howe should be the next Arsenal manager. I mean, I don't know what James is thinking. He's probably screaming at me at the moment, but he's on mute. Um, but I think he's... Um, I think he could be a great fit for Arsenal. Naturally, I respect everybody's opinion on the pod. <laughs> what? Uh, oh, here he comes! Here comes! Here comes the show! Here, here it comes <laughs> on the pod. But we, uh, what Arsenal need in the aftermath of Arsene Wenger is to have a serial winner and to have a manager who knows what it means to win a league title who knows what it means to play in Europe and to have tactical nows and, and, and things like that. I agree with Colin. If Daesh and Howe were to make a step up to a big to a bigger club in the Premier League and make even more of an impression, uh, for example, in Everton or uh, uh, Leicester, if things go awry there, perhaps then, by all means, the next time Arsenal are looking or should anything happen, then... then Put them in, put them in the frame. But um, if my my point would be this: um, Manchester United made a, an error of judgment to give it to David Moyes, and things start to go a little bit awry. Uh, they have Mourinho in charge now. Who, if he does win the FA Cup final, will win his fourth um, trophy in two years if you count the Charity Shield. Um, that's Mourinho winning those trophies at Manchester United. That's not necessarily because he's got an absolutely fantastic squad. It's because he's got a big, massive managerial mentality where you win lots of trophies. And um, Arsenal need to follow suit in that respect, I believe. OK, and that more or less, uh, unless anyone wants to add any more to the Wenger Veng- debate, please say no, because this will completely ruin my link if you do. I'll no. take that, I'll take that I'll take that as a no. Uh, James mentioned that Jose Mourinho, you know, if he wins the FA Cup, and that's exactly where we're moving on to next. Uh, the sort of major footballing results of the weekend were the, was the FA Cup's semi-finals, Manchester United uh, coming from behind to beat uh, Tottenham. Yeah, well, we won't discuss the whole Tottenham whether or not they're you know, whether or not they're made to win trophies. We may discuss that another time. And Chelsea overcoming Southampton in a more or less uh, in a more convincing manner. But I, I say this every week. But my question is, who does winning the FA Cup mean more to? 
because we saw in the last week um, that Jose Mourinho. It may have been after. The, it may have been after the FA Cup final. Jose Mourinho saying that for him this year, coming second is a success. So if, has he completely dismissed the FA Cup and you know he's only caring about finishing second, or you know, and we all know how much Jose Mourinho loves to win, as saw James allude to earlier. Or is this more important to Antonio Conte, who, you know, we're led to believe that he's on his way out, that, you know, there's rumblings rumblings back backstage with Roman Abramovich, not happy with transfers, so on and so forth. But will this FA Cup, if he wins it, be enough, similar to Arsene Wenger, to keep him to keep him in a job for a while? So who is it more important to that they win? Is it more important to Manchester United or is it more important to Chelsea? And James, I'll kick off with you. Uh, I think it's more important to Manchester United. I think um, Manchester United are a club that you have to be seen to winning tro- uh, for winning trophies, and I think Mourinho will want to carry on the uh, the good work from last season and uh, win a trophy again. I think, as regards to Conte, Conte, I think he's on his way. Uh, so if he doesn't win that final, it's not for him the end of the world. He's never particularly done well in cup competitions, even in Italy, and. Um, you know, there's question marks. Is he really happy in London, especially off the field? You know, there was a period, I think, where his family were not in London and it was, was, um, was, that was difficult for him. But I think, um, I think Chelsea are looking elsewhere to see uh, what other managerial um, um, candidates there are. So I would say in the, for the question, it's, it's more important to Manchester United in this respect. So, more important, so James think it's more important for Manchester United to win it. Uh, Colin, do you think it's you know, do you think Conte's on his way out, and therefore the FA Cup won't do anything to, won't do anything to save him, or do you think this could be his one last shot at still being in a job next year? Right, okay, I'm going to be a little bit harsh here. Um, I agree with James that um, the FA Cup final is more important to Jose. I don't think it was at the beginning of the season, but I think. Um, to be honest, there's no other way of putting it. His, his pants have been pulled down and he's been given a good spanking by Pep Guardiola. Um, so just finishing second and nothing else is is a failure, right? Um, so now he's clinging on to how important the FA Cup is, which is not something he's said in the past particularly. Um, as for Conte... He's gone anyway, um, whether he wins this or not. Um, his, his mindset, he, he's, he, he was gone three months ago, I think. Um, however, I think there will be some flies in the ointment because I can't see, on a big occasion, how Manchester United, that squad, are going to be Chelsea. I think Chelsea will win it. Um I think all these plaudits coming Jose's way for winning a semi-final, right? A semi-final against a Spurs team that scored against them first and I think is a better squad than Manchester United. Um, Give or take, maybe, you know, I still think Pogba is world-class. You know, I think it's more important to Manchester United... However, I think Chelsea will win it. Uh, I don't think Conte could give two hoots, really. 
uh, whether he wins it or not, but I think they will. Okay, that seems pretty convincing. It seems pretty early to be doing um, to be doing previews. You know, I know that F, you know the BBC did that whole you know. Um, well, back in the day, we'd do a whole day's worth of preview for the FA Cup. We're getting ours in about a month early, so at your, at your but, BBC. But, 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 but no, on that, Matthew, I mean, and I'd like to know your opinion as well on this, but just for me to say, I think, um, I think one of the key factors in England was that the Manchester United versus Spurs game was on the BBC. So a lot of people saw it, right? If it was on Sky Sports or BT Sport, you'd probably be getting about a million viewers, right? On the BBC, you've probably got about 15 million people watching it. And the loving that I subsequently heard, whether it be on BBC TV or BBC Radio, and obviously they're biased because they want to keep the FA Cup on BBC and all this sort of good stuff, I'm not saying it's done consciously, it might be subconsciously, but the amount of loving that was going Jose's way for a 2-1 win, I thought was quite sickening um, and way over the top. Um, uh, I didn't think Spurs were that bad. Um, I didn't think Manchester United were that good. They probably deserved to win. But, you know, that that's... That's just I I I personally I think the loving might be coming from every, the or certain members of the media wanting to keep the agenda or keep the idea that Spurs are you know are a big team challenging for time. You know it's you know it's not as if Manchester United you know came overcame Southampton in the you know who are in a relegation dogfight in the semi final. They overcame Spurs who for the past, you know, couple of years have mounted have mounted title challenges. You know, who the year before that were in the League Cup final. I think it's because they want to give this idea that Tottenham are a big side and beating them is an achievement. And there's also I think a subconscious because of the amount of English players that there is in that squad. You know, basically the core of the England side no, at the World Cup will be Eric Dyer, wherever you wish to put him, Dali Alley behind Harry Kane. That spine down the middle of the down the middle of the park will be what England, you know, are probably going to build their team around. So I reckon it's that they want to give the idea that all these, you know, these good English players, you know, you know, are going to go on and you know do well at the World Cup. So for a team like Manchester United to beat this this good team. You know, it's you know, it's a, it's an achievement by Jose Mourinho. It's not as if he's knocked out a lower league side or a lower or a lower table side to get there. He's beaten he's beaten a, a decent team. That's my that's my theory on it, James. I wonder what you know. Do you have a take on that? Well, for me, the surprising thing was that uh, Michel Fulham uh, played in goal for Tottenham in that semi final. I do not understand why Hugo Lloris didn't play. I know he hasn't had the best season. But he's a very, very good goalkeeper. And um, Michel Fordham hasn't really kicked on since uh, leading Swansea to be uh, the reserve goalkeeper at Tottenham. When, he, when Michel Fordham was here in the Netherlands at Utrecht, he was uh, called international team squads and was on uh, the verge of, uh, of making the step to eventually become a number one. And I think that uh, Pochettino has dropped a clangor by picking Fordham in such a substantial game. 
And um, I think uh, I think Tottenham are a crossroads now, where Pochettino has been in charge for four years. And yes, they get plaudits for playing wonderful football, but the players they have at their disposal with Eriksen and Harry Kane, they're going to want to win trophies. Um, I've spoken to many Dutch players uh, here in the Netherlands that have played with Christian Eriksen when he was at Ajax. And they all laud his skill and his uh, technique and being a perfectionist of wanting to win. And I just think, um, I think Pochettino, with his comments uh, before the game, with you know the FA Cup won't be a turning point for Tottenham and it's not really of mammoth importance. He needs to be seen to win a trophy, and I think um, I think he's cut his nose off to spite his face. Uh, to be honest. Um, I think the whole um, Michel Vorming goal, I think, and I don't, I don't, I don't want to get into a whole Brexit thing here, but I think that's just a, that's just a European mentality. You know, there's something, I, I remember Tony Cascarino saying it on, I can't, I can't remember where it was, a couple of years ago, that when he was in France, when he was playing for Marseille, the backup goalkeeper was sort of told at the start of the season, right, you're my backup goalkeeper, but you will play in every single cup game. And it's all something that Jose Mourinho has done because you remember last year in the in the Europa League, Sergio Romero was Manchester United's goalkeeper for the Europa League, even all the way up to the final. So even Jose Mourinho then thought, right, final, I've got, you know, I could put arguably the world's best goalkeeper in, but no, I'm going to stick to the backup goalkeeper because that's, you know, what cup goal, that's what they're for. They are there for cup competition so I think I, I that might be the idea I don't is that is that something yeah. that happens in Holland as well I, I agree with that Matt I think he's uh, been playing all the way through the FA Cup so far yeah so it's just a, a I don't want to say loyalty thing but it's just, you know it would have been harsh to drop him yeah it, it's, it's, it's it's much in the way that Arsene Wenger when he went uh, the, the League Cup final the last one at the Millennium Stadium when they had that punch-up with Chelsea at the end, he went with his youth players all the way through, and then even and then even in the final, I think it wasn't it wasn't exactly a full-strength side. He still stuck with a couple of young players in there because he said, right, the League Cup is is for the youngsters. So, you know, come hell or high water, whatever we're doing, I'm playing the youngsters all the way through. So I think that's sort of what it was with with Michel Vorm. Hugo Lloris was only going to play if Vorm. You know, came down with gout or something on the Friday night. But if you, but surely, if you, but surely, if you have ambitions to win something, you uh, you must play your best team. If you look back in history, nobody is going to say, "Oh, uh, do you remember the uh, second second uh, choice goalkeeper that won the uh, that won the cup for such and such a team?" It will be, "Do you remember when they won it?" And I, I just think, maybe I'm a bit old-fashioned, but um, I think the second-choice goalkeeper cup thing is like a bit of a fad. It doesn't really happen here. I mean, here in the Netherlands, we have one cup competition, and all of the Eredivisie clubs that play in it, they play their um, they play their best goalkeeper, even even when um, even when some teams are going to lower division sides or amateur sides, they go with a full-strength team because they know if they end up winning that cup. They um, well, obviously now the um, uh, they go into the qualifiers, but before it used to be a complete uh, straight um, straight um, place to go into the group phase of the Europa League, and it wasn't it wasn't so long ago that FC Groningen they won the cup 
and uh, they were placed in a group with Olympic Marseille, Sparta, um, Sporting Braga and Slovan Liberec. And it was a mammoth ask for them and they were completely outclassed. But for their supporters, they had uh, they had a, a whale of a time on a European tour. And um, I just think that um, maybe I'm a bit old fashioned, but surely if, when it comes to the crunch of wanting to harbour ambitions to win a trophy, you play your best team. Yeah, I, I, I totally agree. I, I, I agree with you. I'm just sort of you know, not exactly defending Pochettino, but just I'm explaining. I, th- I think that's why that's why he did, you know. And Pochettino, admittedly, you know, Pochettino's the one that sort of has to answer for this. You know, because he's the manager and he's the one that's sort of been hyped up to be, you know, the next quote unquote big, the next big manager if he's if he's not already. So you know, it's ultimately his decision and he's responsible, and he's responsible for it. And in sort of in the end. Yeah, right. I, mean, so, I, sorry, sorry, I, thought I, I, I don't know where we go from there. I mean, I, I just want to say that I, I mean, if I was a, a player. Um, if I was a betting man, I'd rather put money on Pochettino going forward than Mourinho. Well, yeah, because um, Jose Mourinho's got about 15 years on him. <laughs> well, 15 well, more yeah, years. yeah, and, and he's an extremely successful guy, but I think he's, I'm not going to say a dinosaur, but I think he's part of the past, whereas Pochettino's part of the future. Um, one result does not make Mourinho a genius, and... James, you mentioned it that people won't remember, you know, you know whether oh they did well, but they played their reserve team. No one will remember Manchester United winning the semi-finals if they don't win the final, and I don't think they will. Um, so it's just I, I just think Spurs have got a lot better players than Manchester United. Okay, yep. That seems that seems fine. Um, sorry, got a little bit, of, little bit of heartburn there. Um, right. So moving on, and last night was the uh, PFA uh, awards night. Um, and there's only there's only really one place to start because there's only really one talking point to come out of it, and that's Mo Salah did the. You know, I was going to say the committee, but it's voted it's voted on by the players. Did the players get it right in terms of voting Mo Salah? for player of the year or should it have been Kevin De Bruyne and now this is where I get my opinion in which some people have asked for um I personally think that the player of the year all player of the year so football writers PFA and uh, I think there's a couple of others should go to the best player on the team that won the league unless there is a just distinct blow away you know, front runner from somewhere else. Like, for instance, if Scott, if West Ham had stayed up the year Scott Parker won it, I completely would have understood. You know, you know Scott Parker winning it would have made sense. But you know, how good a player could he have been if his team was ultimately, you know, was ultimately relegated? And this also comes back comes back to the fact they award these things, you know, before the end of the season when awards really should be done. You know, submit your vote. No, as of midnight after the last game of the season, when you know, when you know the full result, and do I think that Mo Salah was far and away, you know, blown away, better than Kevin De Bruyne? No, I don't. I don't think so. I th- the the impact that they both had is sort of e- are sort of on equal levels. 
So when it comes to that sort of decider, it then should go to, you know, tie goes to whoever finished higher in the table and who won the title, and that's Kevin De Bruyne. You know, Rosella, a worthy recipient. You know, I'm not, I'm not saying he's a terrible player. Fine winner. But I just think in this case, it should have gone to whoever won the title, and that is Kevin De Bruyne. Colin, do you do you think they got it right or do you think they got it wrong? Yeah, I think they got it right. Um, because I, I think uh, what you're looking at is... I think what you're saying is the best player from the best team should win the award. However, when you look at how far away um, Manchester City are in terms of quality away from everybody else... And then you look at someone like Salah in a team like Liverpool, and I'm not berating Liverpool at all, but they're so far off Manchester City at the moment. Uh, I think that sort of adds volume to him. Um, so it's it's one thing to do what Salah did if he was in a Manchester City side. But for him to do what he did in the Liverpool side, I think adds even more gravitas. So, for me, I mean, I, I would say I don't really buy too much into it. Um, it's an award ceremony. You know, Salah's going to be playing tomorrow night. So, they're going to get on with it. It's a trophy and everything. And it's great and it's nice to be respected. But... Um, I don't buy too much into it. But uh, yes, I think Salah definitely deserved it. Okay. James, uh, you've, you've seen this from far, but do you think the most Salah, you know, are you of my opinion that it should go to the team who wins the title you know, or someone who from the team who wins the title or should it just be the best player overall? And do you think Mo Salah sort of deserved that? Um, I think he should be the best player overall. I think Mo Salah fully deserves the title of Player of the Year. He's been a constant threat for Liverpool in every single game, even when they haven't played well. If he's on the ball, if he's creating a chance, if he's going forward, they still remain in games. And um, I think it's um, I think he's fully deserving of the award. You have to remember as well, this is a, an award voted for by his peers, people that play with him, that play against him. You know, so they see things on a football pitch that um, obviously make them think that you know this is this is something else. And um, as I say, uh, I interview players on a regular basis, and we often talk about opponents they faced, and they will often tell me about the speed of an opponent, or a change of pace, or just vision of uh, of specific opponents. And I think um, I think as well, you know, it's, it's many many players playing on a weekly basis. And in the case in the case of Scott Parker, as you rightly said, Matt, you know it was um, it was a shame for West Ham they went down that season, but he was a, had an absolutely fantastic season, and uh, I think it's good that fellow profs can uh, can recognise the um, the skills and attributes of their opponents, really. Yeah, um, and so further on, there was the Young Player of the Year award. It went to Leroy Sane. Um, again, did they did they get did they get that one right as well? Because you know, for life I can't remember who the other nominees were. I remember Ryan Session was in there, but for life I can't remember. Oh yeah, Harry Kane was in there despite being twenty four. I think he is. I think it was Sterling, Edison, Sane, Session, Kane, and 
some other bums that I can't really think about right now. Did they, <laughs> did they get Young Player of the Year award as right as well, Colin? Um, I, I, yeah, Young Player of the Year, yeah, I suppose. Um, yeah, it's been pretty impressive. So, yeah, I, 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 I don't have any issues with it. At the end of the day, it's a vote, isn't it? Yeah. Um, uh, all I would point out as well, though, is that um, in addition to that, you know, uh, Fran Kirby, uh, the lady Chelsea player, uh, she won Women's Player of the Year, and she's been brilliant for quite a while. And she's got a bit of a story behind her as well. So I think that's worth um, just you, pointing out as well. Would you care to tell the story for those of, for those of us who you know, may not know exactly what it is? Well, it, it's not a great story, but... Is, is, it something, um, is it something to get the tissues ready for dry your eyes no, time? No, no, I'm not, I'm not going to do it that way. But <laughs> um, basically she was part of the Reading Academy. Um, so we're going back a few years before... The women's football was getting there. It was getting there. Um, I wouldn't say it's in its infancy, but it's it was getting strength. Um, and then, basically, when she was 17, her mum passed away. Um, and she just lost all faith in football. Um, it might have been earlier than 17, actually. And she didn't want to do it anymore, understandably. And then, through support and work with Reading, um, she got back into it. And I think the first four seasons she came back with Reading, I think she scored 33 goals. Um, she made her way into the England team. Um, she's now uh, a Chelsea player um, and England player. Um, I'm one of the standout performers, you know, one of the, you know, the identifiable names of, of women's football. So um, I just take my hat off to her as well um, and just say she deserves a mention, I think. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Uh, James, you'll sort of have to enlighten us. Um, what's, the big, what's the big award over in Holland for the players? Yeah, you know, is there is there is there three like we have here with the football writers, uh, the PFA, and I think there's the Premier League Player of the Year as well. Do they have those those many awards, or do they, is it just the one big one? They have the uh, the one big one is specifically for the managers. The uh, the big one is what's called the Ines Mikos Award, which is the award for the best uh, for the best manager, and that's uh, that's the that, I would say that's the most prestigious. And uh, that one—that's one that always gets uh, that always gets uh, a lot of attention. Also, uh, Dutch Sportsman of the Year and Dutch uh, Team of the Year when the uh, victorious Euro 2017 women's team won the uh, the Euros in um, in their own country. They were um, they were rightly lauded as the uh, Team of the Year uh, at the yearly gala that they have. And um, yeah, they're often. Um, it's not just it's exclusive to football in that particular gala evening it's uh, celebrating all different types of sports from tennis to hockey to uh, so it's, to it's, their, it's their equivalent of spotty basically yeah yeah, okay. I, would, yeah I would say so. but in terms of in a footballing sense the Arenas Mikos award for the best manager that's the one that gets the most uh, so, so there's no there's no player of the year uh, as far as I'm aware there's no specific um, uh, there is um, 
but, but there is there are awards within um, towards the end of the season, but there's not as much emphasis on them as uh, as what there are as what there are in the UK. Okay, okay, that's. I just find that odd. Yeah, if if I can just touch on the um, if I can touch on the um, Lido Sane, I think Lido Sane is a uh, is a worthy recipient of a young player of the year, and I uh, place the emphasis on young because I don't believe that Harry Kane at 25 years old, although Harry Kane is exceptionally good, I don't believe that a, play, a professional player at 25 years old should be eligible to win a uh, an award in the category of young footballer. I think she, I think that the young footballer award should be exclusive up until the age of 23, and that should be the cut-off point, but that's just my personal opinion. You just said Harry Kane is exceptionally good. Are you going to be allowed anywhere near the Emirates as a result of that? Are you sure you're not going to have a banning order placed right on your head? No, well, I'd like <laughs> to think that uh, the people that that, um, that may take umbrage with that have to realise that I myself interview professional players and managers on a regular basis. Although my, although my passion is Arsenal Football Club and I attend games from the Netherlands, I'm in a position now where um, I speak to... Uh, professional players and managers on a regular basis and have contact with many press officers of European clubs and I have to act in a uh, professional way and um, I will uh, I, I can only say what I see okay that's that's fair enough just a quick one Matthew just to interject yes is um, I don't think these awards are that particularly important um, I think the fact that Harry Kane's never won one having what he's done at least in the last three seasons, is surprising. But um, just to put it into perspective, could either of you guys tell me any of the five players of the last five seasons who who won the same tournament, won the same trophy as uh, Mohamed Salah? The PFA player. Of the, I know Angelo Kante won it two years last ago. year. Two years in a row because he won it. The, no. no, no, sorry, Riyad Mahrez won it. The year Leicester won the title. Correct. Uh, um, before that, where are we going? Uh, 2014-15 would have been Eden Hazard. Are you sure you're not on Wikipedia? Nope, I'm looking. That's excellent. No, That's I'm looking. Excellent I'm looking knowledge. at my picture of uh, Michael, me and Michael Van Gogh at the moment. Before that, 13-14. I'm thinking Yaya Toure. No, it's Suarez. Oh, yeah, Suarez, yes. Yeah, that would have been my second guess. 12-13, Gareth Bale? Yes. Do you want me to stop? No, absolutely, yes. <laughs> well done. <laughs> I doffed my cap. Um. <laughs> now, recite, now ask me to recite the young player of the year, then I'm struggling. <laughs> no, I'm not going to go into that. But, yeah, before, but so, so you don't think individual awards matter that much, is what you're, is what you're saying? Um, not those sort of awards. I'd, I'd much rather win a cup. Okay. Yeah. Well. Okay. That's okay. That's fine. I was going to say, do you, do you have that just with, you know, just a club level, or do you think that you know the golden, oh, what's it called, or the the golden ball at the World Cup? Do you think that should be abandoned as well? Um, I don't know because the, the, the world, well, World Cup football's changed, hasn't it? So it's become a lot more defensive rather than attacking. So the days of, uh, you know, Lineker versus Maradona, I think, are long gone. Um, you know, it's whoever really sort of like gets all the way to the end of the competition. Um, so 
I think results matter, cups matter. Uh, these sort of individual awards, I just think maybe they're a little bit of an excuse to, like, you know, sell Coca-Cola or um, Gatorade or whatever's in the background. Do you know what I mean? Um, I, I don't really think they're that conducive to the success of football. If I can just make one final point, I touched on the uh, the Dutch Football of the Year not being as uh, as prevalent as the uh, as the managerial award, which is the case. But just to give an example of the uh, previous winners of the Dutch Football of the Year, Karim El Amadi, the fine old midfielder who used to play for Aston Villa, was the winner last year. And in 2010, Suarez uh, was crowned Dutch Player of the Year, and in 2013, Wilfred Boney. So the award is um, is given out every year, but there's not as much emphasis on that award in comparison to the uh, to the Manager of the Year award here. Okay, that's fine. Now we move on to the uh, the light-hearted topic of the night, and I can't remember who suggested. I think it was James about favourite grounds. So I'll let I'll let you sort of kick off and introduce it. Yeah, it was just an idea I had. Obviously, we've uh, been talking for quite some time, and uh, all three have, uh, and Marcus as well when he was on, have uh, um, had different things to the pod, and they're all interesting in their own way. I was just wondering, from my point of view, from you both having attended matches uh, through the years, and and our conversation last week about uh, European matches, I wondered if there was any specific grounds that you've both been to where was uh, was a favourite ground that you had or an experience you had in a certain game, perhaps, and uh, just thought that might be interesting to talk about. Um, OK, I'll kick off. My favourite favorite ground, and this is an odd one, I urge anyone to go there, purely because there was, it's Orlando City. And why I say that is because there's something unique about it, is they seem to have taken... All the rules that you know make you know the you know that make American sports great, like the fact, for instance, that you can you know uh, like we have in you, well we don't have anything where you can drink a beer uh, with you can't drink alcohol with inside to the pitch, so that's why you can't you can't take anything to your seat. Whereas in whereas with Orlando City, they've got these wide open concourses that sort of open up at the back of the stand. So you can see the game whilst you're queuing up for your beer. And they've also incorporated the, you know, uh, Borussia Dortmund style, you know, wall with the rail seating, which was absolutely fantastic. Fantastic. It's just, it just seemed they got every single thing right. They made everything that should be good about a ground and combined it all into one. It's just fantastic. Now, my favourite experience is Swansea City away last game of the 2012 to 13 season. And the reason why it was just everything encapsulated in an away day that was just great. Parked up uh, at a lovely parking lot that was free for some reason for the end of the season. They just decided to uh, jack off the uh, the, the prices. Um, had a lovely walk down the, down the River Towie. A lunch at Rossi's Fish and Chips uh, across the road from the stadium. It's a nice sunny day. I think it was like I think it was like twenty five degrees, and we won the game three 0 Last game of the season, everyone all in having a jolly up, and it was just just great. It was everything that could have gone right that day went right. So that's sort of my favorite. That's my favorite ground and my favorite experience. Can I add worst ground as well while we're at it? Yeah, it's, why not? It's Fratton Park, 
My word, that did, I, I just, <laughs> I just realised, I just realised we've got two Portsmouth people in our what? Oh, I did, no, I stand, I stand by it. Fratton Park is an absolute dump. There is zero <laughs> leg room. The, the walk to it is to the, the only positive is the fact that they've got a Tesco's right next door to it. So it looks as if it's somewhere near the 21st century. There is zero leg room. The concourses are crowded. If you go to the away end, you have to go through this very narrow back alley, which I would not want to do if I was a Southampton fan on you know South Coast Derby Day. You know, I can't imagine the amount of people that have been killed down that alley. Um, the toilet facilities are terrible. It's too much for a part where that's general. Just terrible food options. It's, everything about Fratton Park is absolutely terrible. And the fact that they've got some guy with a bell that goes for 90 minutes. That just, that's the icing on the cake. <laughs> so yeah, that's my best best ground, best experience, worst ground. Okay, very interesting, Colin. Well, uh, my favourite ground is Fratton Park. Um, I'm only joking. Good, you better be. <laughs> um, it's interesting because nobody ever names their own ground, do they? Um, and probably quite rightly so. Um, I've got two I'd like to mention. I'll, I'll keep it very brief. Um, for whatever reason, I've not been. I've been to the city, but I've not actually been to the ground. Um, the Stade Louis II Stadium in Monaco. Um, I've always been amazed by that place. I know it's a small stadium, but um, the fact that it's got an underground car park blows my mind. Um, so I've said this in previous podcasts, so I can't detract it. I've got to keep going with that one. Um, the other ground I would say is the city ground in Nottingham um, Nottingham Forest ground obviously um, I lived in Nottingham in the mid 90s to 2000 um, I lived in West Bridgeford uh, which is the area there and uh, just by the River Trent and Nowadays, that sort of stadium wouldn't be built. It's it's basically on the side of a river opposite their enemy, Notts County, as it was. And the thing is that the whole stadium just is... I compare it, obviously, to Ellen Road and, and other stadiums that I know. It's just beautiful, clean, but it's got something about it. It's not... It's not like going into a doctor's surgery or a dentist or something like that. It's actually got, you know, history, heritage, but it's still quite a cool place. So the sort of place you you wouldn't mind going, uh, you know, if they've got like a little bar or something, when there's no games on. Um, and it's just a beautiful setting and I've had a lot of fun times there. And I think it's a shame that um, a stadium like that isn't hosting Premier League games. Um, because during that time, I was I was there when they were a Euro '96 um, host stadium. Um, so yeah, I've got a lot of time for that. But ultimately, my answer would be uh, the Stade Louis II. Very, very interesting, fellas. If I can just add my thoughts on that. My favourite ground uh, in the UK is Villa Park. 
I went there for Arsenal, for Aston Villa against Arsenal in March 2001. And Arsenal won 2-0. And when you come, uh, when you go into the stadium and you look opposite to the uh, to the whole end and 42,000 people and a raucous atmosphere was uh, a very, very special away day. And uh, one of my fondest memories was being able to watch uh, a game in the Maracanã in Rio de Janeiro. I was there on the holiday in March 2015 and I took in a game of um, Flamengo, the local side, against um, in the state championship against a team called Bangu. And uh, it was just... Uh, Amazing to be uh, a to be present in such a world famous stadium, which was renovated for the World Cup, of course. But it wasn't completely full. But just the aura of being in that place and knowing what's gone before, and the just the the, the jovial atmosphere of uh, people having fun and singing and everybody being together, it was uh, it was something quite special. And even the um, the people selling drinks and snacks, just walking amongst the crowd in, in complete peace, in, in complete peace, and uh, enjoying in with the um, with the fans and everything. So I uh, I urge any listeners if they have if they are in Brazil and they have the opportunity to go to that mother of all stadiums, then they uh, I would take the opportunity because it's uh, it was a long time ago now, more than three years, but uh, it's still uh, still a very prevalent memory. Yeah, you mentioned, James, about uh, the history and everything that's gone before when you mentioned American art. Here's a challenge for every, whatever, for anyone who's listening. Every ground you go to from here on out, from where you, from where you sit or stand in the ground, picture a famous goal that's happened at that ground. And then try and imagine what it would have looked like from your seat. So, for instance, you mentioned Villa Park, James. When I went to Villa Park for the first time and I sat in my seat, I just I sort of looked at the pitch and I said, how would Ryan Giggs's run against Arsenal have looked sitting from where, I, sitting from where, I'm, from where I'm standing? When I went to the new camp, I thought, you know, Ole Gunnar Solskjaer's winner in 99, sat in his seat. What would, it, what would it have looked like? You know, any sort of, when I went to St. James's Park, you know, Philip Albert's lob over Peter Schmeichel. You know, if that happened, you know, and I was sitting there, what would it have looked like? It's just a, just a challenge. It's something that really you'll really enjoy doing. It kills it kills about five minutes whilst you're, you know, waiting for your pie to cool down or something. It's, it kill, kills five minutes of time, but it's absolutely fun and it's sort of nostalgia bringing. Colin, you were going to say something. Well, well, I was going to say something to James, but I mean, first of all, Matthew, I'm so glad you said that. Because I, I thought you were about to say, when you go to any stadium, um, and there was a slight pause, I thought you were about to say, buy a half and half scarf. <laughs> and, and you didn't, and I'm very pleased. But what I was going to say to James is that, James, you, you just lit the blue touch paper and off went the fireworks. I mean, the American art, that is just the, that's the jackpot, right? Yeah. I mean, I mean, I'm interested in that because, I mean, when you went, I mean, obviously we all know the history of it, and I think it's probably up there with Wembley, right? And, uh, I mean, how how many seats does it have there now? Uh, I believe it's now um, 80,000. I think uh, it used to be 100, 120 in some cases. But the, the, the eerie thing was is, is when you go in 
I mean, I kept thinking about the um, the nineteen fifty uh, uh, World Cup final between Brazil and uh, and Uruguay, and, mm. and what that what that meant to the people of Brazil, and how much of a catastrophe that was. And then you see the uh, the old footage of players like uh, Zico and Levalino and, and and the wonderful teams that have played, uh, wonderful players that have played in that stadium as well. It was uh, it was really surreal. I, t- I took a lot of photos as well, and it was just uh, just a wonderful memory. I think to watch Flamengo, who are the biggest side in Brazil, and uh, to watch them um, to watch them play in their own stadium was something very special. My my, uh, my main uh, photo on my Twitter feed is of that game. So when you when listeners log on to my uh, Twitter feed, they'll see from the touchline they'll see uh, former Brazil coach Vanderlei Luxemburgo barking orders to his team in his in his baseball cap, with the uh, Flamengo players uh, looking on to a decision that the referee has just made. So uh, yeah, it was uh, was um, was a, a fantastic experience. Am, am I correct in thinking that was? Where John Barnes scored an amazing goal for England. Yes, he was against Brazil, but it was never ever recorded. Um, I don't think there was ever a video of it. Is that right? I, no, I think no. I, I, I'm pretty. Yeah, I think I've seen it. Well, when you say recorded, it must have been because. Yeah, yeah, I've I've seen I've seen it a couple of times because it's been compared to. Uh, I've, I've seen various people compare goals to. You know, John Barnes is in the American art. For life, I can't remember. I can't picture what it looks like now, off the top of my head. But I've de- I've definitely seen it. Okay, well then, that's one for me to uh, YouTube. L- yeah, look it up. I'm pretty, I was going to say, in these, it, it may not have been live, is what you may have been saying. So people maybe tuned in for the delayed feed or something, something like that. Um, but no, so I think that only really leaves us with one more piece of business. And that is to check up on what's been happening over in the Netherlands. Um, and I understand that there was a we've had the uh, cup semi-finals, but there was a cup final over in the Netherlands this weekend, wasn't there, James? There was. Uh, Feyenoord have won the Dutch Cup for the thirteenth time in their history, winning uh, the final, which they played in their own stadium against Alzad Alkmaar, comprehensively winning three 0 with goals from Jorgensen, Van Persie, and Jens Tornstra. Uh, they're very, very happy to win the cup for the second time in the last three years, and for Van Bronckhorst to pick up his fourth, um, his fourth uh, trophy as final manager, and uh, including the Dutch Super Cup, winning the Dutch Cup twice in the Eredivisie last season. So uh, he's very content. The um, the final supporters were all uh, all extremely happy and went to the. Um, there were scenes in Rotterdam today where they paraded the cup in their own stadium. And uh, yeah, it's a good, um, it's a good, um, a good achievement for Feyenoord. The disappointment of uh, failing to um, to challenge to retain their league title has been somewhat swept away a little bit with this win. Uh, they mainly struggled in the Eredivisie to regain that uh, to retain their title last season due to uh, problems with with the rhythm of playing two games a week in a very difficult Champions League group. Uh, from the autumn onwards, but um, I think they'll add well over the summer and they'll come back stronger. And so, on the eve of next season, we will have a, a that Super Cup between PSV Eindhoven and Feyenoord. Now, you mentioned that Feyenoord. No, oh, sorry, sorry. You mentioned the Feyenoord won it, won the uh, cup in their own stadium. Is um, 
is uh, finals ground what's used for uh, for cup finals every year, or is it like a rotating basis like Champions League finals? No, final the Stadium de Calp is what's used for uh, cup finals for many, 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 many years, and uh, there are, there are fans, particularly of Ajax, that don't believe that they should be able to play a. Uh, a final in their own stadium, but it's, it's tradition. And uh, with, with the Super Cup, the Super Cup always used to be played in the Amsterdam Arena, but the Dutch FA came with a, a new idea last summer that the uh, Dutch Super Cup, which is the English version of the Charity Shield, if you like, as of last season, that will be, that will be played at the home ground of the league champions. So when we have the Dutch Super Cup in... Um, in August uh, this year, the curtain raiser for the new season, PSV against Final will be played in Eindhoven, whereas before the Dutch Super Cup used to always be played at the Amsterdam Arena. Okay, because that's something that sort of happened with Spurs this year. People talking about whether or not it's a home. And I think Colin has some pretty strong opinions on this. Do you? It's, it may have been you, it may have been someone else. The things that didn't think it was right for Spurs to have. The FA Cup semi-final at what is their you know, quote-unquote home ground? Yeah, I, I, I did, Matthew, and I think it's slightly different to the Dutch example because England have their own home stadium, um, which is for England games, international games, but they've obviously leased it out um, to Spurs. Um, so it's a little bit different in that respect. Um, but yeah, I felt that was a little bit unfair and it just took um, a little bit of magic away from me because if the argument is that, you know, all uh, semi-finals of the Cups have to be played at Wembley, then that's fine. Okay, I sort of get that uh, rather than, you know, the old tradition of, you know, maybe playing one at Old Trafford or one at Villa Park or wherever um, but okay you can't have it both ways you can't you can't say semi-finals are special therefore it's going to get played at Wembley and then well it's not that special really because Spurs play there all the time I mean I understand there's problems you know there's this you know the, the rebuilding and everything but um it just it just left a bit of a bad taste in the mouth for me, but I'm pretty sure that that's just going to go by the by, and um, within a few years, no one will even remember it. Okay, that's fine. So, so you're so you're okay with the FA Cup semi-finals to an extent being played at Wembley? You're just it, just, it was just a little bit uncomfortable the fact that Spurs were doing it for you know this one year. It was their home, so it seems at home. So you think just that one, because it was May United and Spurs, maybe that one should have been played at somewhere in the middle, which would have been which would have been Villa Park. Yeah, perhaps. I mean, you know, do you remember when um, the FA Cup finals were at um, uh, the? Um, I was going to say Cardiff Arms Park, the but, Millennium um, Stadium, the Millennium Stadium. Um, and that worked really well. Um, but again, you'd have to ask a question why it was played there rather than another club's ground. But yeah, I, 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 I sort of get it. Um, it just, again, I just, at the back of my throat, I just feel it's money talks. 
um, and that is what t- dictates where games are played. But um, yeah, I'm getting over it, and I I think no one will ever speak of it again in like two or three years' time. Um, you say two or three years' time. Aren't Chelsea moving into Wembley while Stamford Bridge is getting redone? Don't start me off. <laughs> right. What are they? Oh, I've started him off. Yeah. Yeah, I I think they are. I think that's the I think that's the negotiation, yeah. It's either that or it's a Twickenham. Which I don't think which I don't think is gonna work. But I think Wembley, yeah, I think Wembley is where they're gonna go for two for two years for a year at least, anyway. My blood is boiling. <laughs> um, this is London bias. Um, <laughs> they're looking after themselves. Um, oh, so so, perhaps, so, if, so if Leeds were redeveloping Ellen Road, you'd be okay with them? I don't know. Let's say playing a Valley Parade for a year. Mate, I've I, I've grown up with Leeds sharing um, a ground with Hunslet Rugby Club um, in rugby league and. The pitch was just a mess because you've got rugby, football, rugby, football, rugby, football. That was Leeds United when I was growing up, right? So, um, hey, if we can, if we can rough it, then why, why can't the old Southerners? Do you know what I mean? Okay, fair enough. Get, get, get them shown with Leighton Orient. Okay, okay, okay. Fulham, Fulham, you, 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 you're not far away from Chelsea. Yeah, we. Yeah, it was, yeah, you can you can share it. You'd, you'd love that. Yeah, it, absolutely. Well, more money for the club, absolutely. Or if we if we're share, <laughs> if we're sharing if we're sharing grounds while we're at it, QPR have had some experience with it. Let Chelsea fans go to Q, go Q, go for QPR for a year. Then that will really sort them out. Because there's another one that's a complete dump. Is is Loftus yeah. Road? Um, I think that just more or less uh, brings an end to what's been another uh, exciting and. Uh, somewhat uh, fiery episode of the Man on the Post podcast. Uh, just one more thing to remind you, and that's of the terms and conditions. Don't forget to subscribe to the podcast through iTunes or through the Acast app. Listen out for Man on the Post Extra Time every weekend with Chris, Ryan, Jesse and Justin. And of course, you can follow us on Twitter at Man on the Post. Uh, the guys also have their individual Twitter handles uh, as well, I believe. James, yours is? At James Rowe NL. And Colin, yours is? Cass707. Now, Colin, what is the what is that uh, profile picture on Twitter? That's not you, is it? Uh, yes. It is you. Oh, for some for some reason, I keep, I think I keep thinking that's Chris Waddle for some reason when it just scrolls through tw- when it sc- scrolls through Twitter. Anyway, um, and I'm on pod on Twitter as well, which is at mattre 63 and that brings that to an end. Unless anyone has any uh, final points to bring up that they choose to bring up, maybe more about half and half scarves. Colin, leaning at you. No, I'm, I'm more thinking about Chris Waddle at the moment. <laughs> uh, Chris Waddle in his good days, or Chris Waddle in his bad days? I don't know. It's just Chris Waddle. You just for some reason when because I never quite zoom in on the picture, but it, every time it flicks through, whenever I'm scrolling through, I say, "Oh, what's Chris Waddle had to say?" Oh no, it's not him. It's Colin. Um, so that's so that's all it really is. Uh, James, do you have any, have any further points that you want to bring up? Uh, no, no, that's that's me down for this week. But nope. uh, it, we were talking about Chris Waddle. I would, uh, I, I take my hat off to Chris Waddle and the success that he was when he played for Olympic Marseille. I still don't think he gets half the credit he deserves for the uh, wonderful spell he had in, in the south of France. Yeah, uh, James, you're absolutely welcome. As my uh, double, um, I'm just going to say, you know, on behalf of Chris Waddle, 
you're more than welcome. Thank you very okay. much for the praise. Cool. Indeed, and that just that that officially sort of wrapped up the podcast. So uh, that's it. Uh, we shall uh, listen to you will hear from us again whether, whether or not it's next Sunday or next Monday is yet to be discovered but we'll have fun finding out in the meanwhile so all that's left to do is for James to say goodbye goodbye it's time for Colin slash Chris Waddle to say goodbye 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 <laughs> and it's time for me to say goodbye and always remember to have your man on the post <laughs>